You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Gilad Hirschberger wrote in her study on collective trauma and the social construction of meaning that collective trauma is a cataclysmic event that shatters the basic fabric of society. Aside from the horrific loss of life, the collective trauma is also a crisis of meaning. Collective trauma is defined as a crisis shared by a group of people of any size, up to and including an entire society. Traumatic events witnessed by an entire society can stir up collective resentment, often resulting in a shift in that society's identity. When we talk about collective wounds today, we no longer refer to a single or sequential catastrophic or geographic event that wound a community like slavery or genocide. To be wounded, we don't have to be located in the same place at the same time. We can view crises on social media or television at different times and locations. And people of different ethnicities can still experience the collective trauma and wounding of people trapped in racist systems. The wounds of racism manifest in the individual but are not personal. They're inflicted because of the mythologies of race and the structural violence of racism. Ultimately, suffering of the magnitude that I'm describing can't be resolved by individuals. It is happening right before our eyes. Yet the response of American citizens has been muted by the argument that what they're seeing and hearing is not oppression at all. It's compliance with laws. But those laws just happen to be rife with ethnocentrism, rejection of the stranger, racism, and structural oppression of the poor. In this present day of heightened xenophobia, fear, and national isolationism, entire communities are suffering from current and historical trauma. From the Center for Action and Contemplation, I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. It's great to be here today to engage in this beautiful conversation Uh, reflecting on the third chapter of your book, Crisis Contemplation. Uh, This chapter for our listening audience is entitled Wounds. This this chapter is actually maybe one of your shorter chapters, but probably one of the more powerful chapters. I would like to just start this conversation out by framing this this idea of wounds. Another word that I think will be great to to use as a as a synonym is just trauma. We can call it trauma. We can call it uh, brokenness, pain, but wounds. And um, I was listening to, I think it was a commercial the other day of a of an episode from Ancestry uh, that was sponsored by Ancestry dot com, but it's really on discovering your roots by uh, hosted by Doctor. Henry Louis Gates. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, he, uh, with his team, 
typically goes through the ancestral DNA research for a lot of celebrities, famous people, and he presents the findings to them, and it's often eye-opening. And this particular episode was an individual by the name of Jordan Peele, who is an, a screenwriter, a producer, an actor, a comic. Uh, he's done movies like Nope, Us, Get Out, and the sketch comedy show Key and Peele. And in this episode, Dr. B, he actually was being presented this information about his great-grandmother. And as Dr. Gates was sharing that information about his great-grandmother, who from the 1860 census, information was gathered from that, that revealed that his great-grandmother was sold, was taken from her family, split from her brother and her parents, sold for $1,250. And she was 12 years old. And her brother, who was younger, was sold for $700. As he sat there and processed, meaning Jordan, as he processed this information, Dr. B, Dr. Gates asked, you know, what do you think your, your grandmother was experiencing? What do you think she was going through? Or how does this affect the family? And, and Jordan made this eye-opening he made a statement that just blew me away. And he said, you know, it's, this had to be traumatizing. This had to be difficult. But then he said, Dr. B, where does that trauma go? Ah. That type of trauma has to go somewhere. So this is how I want to frame this conversation. Wow. <laughs> this is how I want to frame this conversation. Where <laughs> does trauma like that go? Oh, that's a that's a great opening for the meditation I wrote for the beginning of the chapter that goes like this. Wounds inflicted upon the village pierce the self and soul of us, shatter the I and the we of us. We've seen it before so many times, and yet we're surprised and unwilling to look into the vacant gaze of systems that decapitate, mutilate, and incarcerate. We can stop them, you know. I mean, it won't be easy, but it can be done. All we have to do is to redirect our resources and repent for the harm the systems have done on our behalf. We can testify and record with our phones, a sacred and necessary witness. And we can go get the monsters that we have unleashed. Where does the trauma go? It has to go somewhere. I don't know, over the years, because my family has a history of similar trauma, we just kind of thought that it dissipated into the air or something. You know, we always had this get over it, keep going. You don't have time to pause. You have to survive. You got to eat. You got to go to work. You don't have time to deal with trauma. But as we talk about in the chapter, trauma changes everything about us. And so when you're talking about this on a communal level, there's a whole bunch of communities, lots of communities walking around with trauma. So you're, you're dealing as a system or a government or police with folks who look all right, 
Their behavior may be a little off, but they are operating out of trauma. So how does that happen? Mm. You know, does the trauma stick to your skin? What is What happens? Is it part of your memory system? Well, we now know that it's genetic, and I think it's Dr. Rachel Rahuda says, you're not born with a genetic prison. What she means by that is the genes you've got, they're not locked in forever. It's not always going to be that way. Your genes are affected by what you experience. Your genes are affected by trauma. And that trauma is passed down through the generations to folks who never directly experienced the trauma. So where does the trauma go? It goes into our children. It goes into our progeny. It goes into our communities. The community suffers and the trauma is alive and well. So these wounds, as you're telling us, these wounds are have a historical relationship, but they're, as you write, they're also intergenerational. They're handed down. They are, there is a inheritance, inheritance, if you will. Uh, they're epigenetic, if you will. And so there's this deep resonance there, and but it's often not recognized. And I think this is the challenge. Um, I mean, what Jordan said makes them, where do they go? And, you're, and what you're saying, they're, they're within us. They're, it's there. The manifestation, the, the realization, the evidence of the, the pain, the trauma, it's, it's there. And it's oftentimes reflected in how we raise our children. It's often reflected in our ideologies or how we interpret right, the world around us, what you're saying is, but things can change. This story does not, it's not fixed. This is not a fixed story. Transformation is possible. Change is possible, right? And I think that's an important fact. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I think that's critical when we talk about trauma. Sometimes we think it is what it is. We just got to deal with it, right? Nothing can change. Um, But you're saying no, Yeah, but everything can change, but first you have to recognize the fact that you have been traumatized. I mean, the fact that um, a whole group of folk from different nations on the continent of Africa didn't know where they came from, whose languages, songs, mythologies were purposely taken away. And you would think, okay, now that's a loss that's traumatizing that will be with you forever. And then we come to the year 2023, where we can actually figure out who we are and where we're from. But even finding out who you are, who your ancestors are, can be traumatizing. My my sisters uh, took a trip to Ghana in uh, 2019, the year of the returns. And they were led by a group of African-Americans from all over the country. And the leader had her DNA done that was going to be revealed um, in Ghana at the place of no returns, you know, at the door of no returns. And she was completely traumatized when she got the results because she had no no African heritage at all. Mm -hmm. She was shocked. She was traumatized. She burst into tears. No one knew what to say or do. And so, you know, it's a double-edged sword. To know who you are is to absorb some realities that you never knew or you've forgotten or you don't want to know. I was looking Mm -hmm. at a segment of the show you were talking about Mm -hmm. with Angela Davis. Um, Some of you remember the civil rights activist and professor who has been fighting for the rights of the oppressed and the underemployed for years. And... um, 
she found out with Dr. Henry Louis Gates that she had ancestors on the Mayflower. That <laughs> she found out that uh, she had a strong American lineage of the revolutionary type. <laughs> and she said it is amazing because as an activist, she's been called non-American, anti-American, and all of that. And here she is embodying um, the original settlers and history and um, from the revolutionary times. And she said, I always said there's nothing more American than to fight for the rights of others, like, uh, you know, those they did in the revolutionary times. And now she finds out that her ancestors were part of that. You make a really clear distinction in the book between individual wounds and communal wounds. And for our listening audience, we're this chapter is primarily around the idea of the shared experience of wounds that affect villages, affect tribes, affect families, affect communities, crisis or trauma that is inflicted on a group. Just the other day, Dr. B, I had, I was privileged to see a play entitled Detroit 67. Mm. Detroit 67, which uh, was highlighting the, the events that took place in 1967 in Detroit. As I was growing, I was born in 75, and my understanding and the history that I was told, these were entitled or called the race riots of 1967. However, as I began to, to learn and listen and watch this play, there was another narrative that came out. And so the, there was a wound from that experience that was inflicted upon the community of Detroit. Matter of fact, it seemed like it was since 1967, the, the narrative or the impression or how people saw outsiders and how they saw Detroit changed dramatically. Detroit before that had a, a much more positive image, but the image after 67 um, really went down. But the narrative was these were race riots. However, there was an alternative narrative <laughs> that was revealed from listening and watching and even reflecting on histories, that there was an alternative narrative. And that narrative, it, that it was not a race riot, the conflict was not necessarily between races, but the conflict was between Black people and the police at that time. There were some bad actors from the way history presents it within the police department that was inflicting pain, trauma, wounds on the community. And that blew up. And the governor invited the, the National Guard to come in. And of course, the, the President Johnson at the time, he, he brought in the, um, the army. And so you had all, a lot of military force that actually inflicted pain and trauma on the community. And so as I begin to think back, because I'm from Detroit, I was born in Detroit. And as I think about the, the communal uh, connections and the identity of the community here, I could not help but to go back and evaluate and assess the trauma that was inflicted during that period and how that trauma has been handed down and how that trauma is still being realized today. It seems odd to say that, you know, a city can suffer trauma, but it can. Um, and, you know, that's the work of Walter Wink, who says, you know, these things have spiritual interiorities. 
You know, there's angels over the institutions, angels over the city that embody the essence of the spiritual core of that institution or that city. And so, yes, a city can be traumatized. I lived in Memphis for many years, and Memphis never got over the assassination of Martin Luther King on its streets, just never got over it. Um, And you could feel it. Years, years later after the assassination, I remember um, Mrs. King coming in for a trial that was happening in Memphis with regard to the assassination many years later. And she wept all through the airport as if it had happened, you know, that day. The city essentially shut down in that area and many of the white citizens moved further out and abandoned the cities. And Memphis has spent years um, feeling guilty, if a city can feel guilty. I remember um, the mayor apologizing again and again for all that had happened. How does a city recover when something happens, sort of like Dallas where um, President Kennedy shot, and then there's this sense in the city of a spiritual malaise that falls upon the citizens and falls upon that city. And it has economic impact. It has impact everywhere. Uh, When you have that kind of scarring, that kind of wounding that we're talking about. But I think what happens nowadays is you don't have to be in the place of the wounding to be wounded. Because we can Zoom And because of television and 24-hour news cycles, we can get wounded just looking at television. And so, you know, I make it a real spiritual practice to be careful of what I watch. Because of the constant wounding, I can't sit and eat dinner and watch the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't watch George Floyd be killed and then be okay and go garden or shop. So the wounding is happening on a different level now, and it's affecting more than the group that the wound is inflicted upon. Because it wasn't just African-Americans who were wounded by seeing George Floyd killed. Anyone who saw that was wounded. And so, you know, then the question becomes, okay, we're being wounded at every turn. How do we heal? How do we recover from this? And there, there are some very, very real possibilities that I explore in the chapter. Yeah, I, I would like to get into some of those those practices. Uh, but you bring out a—I want to just elaborate a little bit more on that point you brought up about just how what we watch and what we allow into to our hearts and to our minds could affect us. And I mean, there, Doctor B, there are movies that I have walked out on. Oh yes, because. <laughs> Just because what I was witnessing, uh, the trauma, the the wounding, if you will, I didn't want to take that in, um, and so there are there are certain things that I I choose to not allow myself to participate in as a result of uh, just protecting, protecting and guarding guarding my heart. But let's get into some of the more. What are some practices? What are some things that we can do? And and even Doctor B and I want to ask you, what's the role of compassion? So how do we as not only those who are trying to heal from some of the historical and generational wounds and trauma, 
So what are some practices, but also as an outsider? A second question, Dr. B, as an outsider, as someone who may not have been um, someone who has uh, been on the you know receiver of the, the historical trauma, the generational trauma, but maybe as an outsider, how what is the role of compassion and how can we participate in the healing of the other? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that I always considered these, you know, these events to be kind of ultimate, and it was really helpful to me to learn under the teachings of Father Richard Rohr that there were cyclical wisdom patterns and cyclical healing patterns of order, disorder, and reorder. And so the reason we know that transformation can come is because there is a reordering and there is change that comes after chaos, always. The first thing is to face the chaos and um, taking wisdom from Native American studies, um, they've had many, many what we call historical wounds. And what they found during the historical wounding was that it was not helpful. Talk therapy didn't help, not at all, because it didn't reach the places where the wounding had taken place. I mean, there was, when you're wounded like that, there is internal devaluation, there's an assault on yourself and the community. You become voiceless and you become enraged in ways that you cannot express in healthy ways. And so the whole point is to be able to allow your body as well as your soul to heal from the wounds because it's not just your psyche that is wounded, but also your body, even though you look perfectly all right. Internally, you have been wounded. And so they found that ritual helped. Dancing helped. Song and drumming helped. If you've ever been to powwow um, as a spectator, um, and when I lived in Minneapolis, I had the opportunity to do that, there is something just electric about drumming circles and the singing and the methodical rhythm, like a heartbeat, of folks in a circle all drumming at the same time. 15, 20 people drumming a huge drum and singing and almost wailing as they drum. Something happens that helps to heal the places that talk can't reach. You know, psychological stuff is great and psychiatry is necessary and talk therapy is one of the most wonderful instruments we have for healing. But it isn't for everyone and it isn't the best therapy for all kinds of wounding. And what they found, um, the woman who's doing this work is, uh, her name is uh, Braveheart. And what she says is that basically... um, You have to move around and allow your body to release the pain that is locked into its sinew and into its bones. I can see that also in in our own, my own context, African-American context, where, you know, in African society, often there are great demarcations between movement from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, but they do that through ritual. We no longer have rituals that allow people to feel as if they are moving toward a different 
reality. And so Native Americans heal from the trauma that is historical and current through ritual, through dance, through song, through powwow, through sweat lodge, releasing from the body the pain. African Americans and others subjected to trauma, Asian Americans, immigrants at the Mexican border, there's got to be a way to figure out how to have practices that allow the body to release the trauma. Hmm. And that's more than talk, and that's more than sitting quietly. So song, dancing, art, painting. Yes. Things that engage both the heart, but also the body. The participation in these rituals can become a pathway in the process of healing. That's right. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash oneingart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I said in the beginning of this uh, little talk when I was reading the meditation that we can do something about the wounding. And I wonder what you think about that because, I mean, what exactly can we do? Other than turning off our televisions and not participating in the viewing of the drama that's being uh, set upon us on a daily basis, what can we do? to redirect our resources? How do we repent for the monsters we've unleashed in our representatives who are not doing what we sent them to do? How do we change the language that harms? Because it's not just physical. I was looking at something the other day and they were talking about how the word woke is now being used as an epithet. Sure. As a curse word. Yeah describing companies as having gone woke. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's negative now. Yeah, mm-hmm. negative. Mm-hmm. And I remember writing this meditation uh, because I live in Florida, and Governor Santos has been particularly hard on woke, all right? And he seems to think that the word woke began with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. No. And yes, Black Lives Matter did use the term woke, but it really began with Jesus and Matthew. When Jesus says, you know, go up to the rooftop, stay awake, be alert, <laughs> stay woke. I mean, even, yeah, it has been, it's been part of the spiritual rhetoric for, for, for generations. I mean, spiritual awakening. I mean, it means to become alive, to, to have insight, right? To, to know you're 100% right. I think there is something that we can do. Um, and it may be more about just becoming more compassionate. So, for example, I began to even realize as I engage with individuals, as I counsel individuals, Dr. B, or as I engage in with people who have been through their own personal but also collective trauma, that just listening, just being compassionate, not judging a person's present behavior as if this is the whole of them, this is all of them, but recognizing that a person may be mirroring right, a level of deep trauma that they do not currently recognize. And that my the opportunity, the invitation for me is to participate in this individual's healing by not judging them, by loving them compassionately, by loving them maybe unconditionally, uh, by being present, by listening, as they work through this, as they are coming to an awareness maybe on their own of what's happening. I may not have to have the answer, but they can experience a reflection of divine love from me that may enable them or participate or even just be a part of the equation as they get closer to finding out who they really are. And so I think compassion, Dr. B, is is critical, right? I mean, I can just think of my own personal journey. How many times have we been misunderstood? How many times have we been working through something, trying to process something, trying to evaluate and understand, why do I feel this way? Why does this trigger me? Why am I angry right (laughs) Right. now? Why does this bother me, right? And that takes time. That's a journey. And you're right. Talk therapy is not enough. You can see 10, 12, 15, 20 therapists and still not find a solution to what's going on on the inside. And we don't, there's no real blueprint other than, as you referenced Dr. Roar, other than, to me, understanding the universal Christ in all of us, the divine image. And I think being woke to that, right? Right. Having right. an awakening to that, seeing <laughs> that, seeing the good in you, right? Which is an act of compassion, is a very simple step. It may not be easy, but it's a very simple step. It doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take, um, you know, a lot of finances, resources. It just takes a choice. It is a decision to love, a decision to love. I took training in counseling, but I was always put off by the ways in which uh, counseling seemed to have a format that required uh, compassionate distance, is what I call it, with the the language of I hear you saying, 
you know, mm-hmm. and repeating mm-hmm. back what people have said and, you know, honoring what they're saying, but not giving in-depth conversation that's engaged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a person of color, that, that isn't how we worked together in the communities I grew up in. Okay. Um, people listened and they sat with you and they held your hand, but they also they engaged. You know, they, they, they say, well, you know what? When that happened to me, this is what happened. <laughs> or my auntie fell off a ledge and when she did that, something happened. You know, there was always this folk tale kind of telling of stories. And usually the story was worse than the one you had just offered. And so you, you tended to feel a little bit better because you went, well, it's not as bad as what I just heard, what she just shared. <laughs> But there was a way in which the community offered a compassion that was, it had legs, I call it. You know, it, it was standing there with you. It was saying, yeah, honey, I understand. And guess what? I've been there. I've walked that path. I've been where you are and didn't know what to do. And I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I hear you and I've, I've gone that way also. There are so many ways of offering compassion, just like there are so many different ways of worshiping, you know? I think some of the reasons that I so enjoyed the Pentecostal experience was because it was a way of purging trauma. You know, you would live for the week on Sunday where you would see someone screaming, run down that aisle, dancing wildly to the music or not to the music. But there was this emotional outlet Mm -hmm. that as, you know, a UCC congregationalist, I had not seen before. Mm. I had not experienced before. And there was such a sense of relief when you left church. Didn't last too long. Sure. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) It lasted about as long as you could remember the sermon, which also wasn't very long. (laughs) But when you left that place, you felt like you had been purged. You know, the some of the wounds, if they weren't healed, at least you'd clean some of them out and they were ready for healing. Um, and so I'm a proponent of, of being able to let the emotion go somewhere and not for us to pretend and allow scabs to heal over festering wounds. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that's deep. I, I can see that. I mean... How many times have we experienced something and maybe it was an unexpected crisis and out of the blue, you just, you just yelled, you just screamed, you just, ah, right. right. <laughs> Gotta let it out. <laughs> you just had to let it out, right? Just had to go something, you know, it's like, it's like what, you know, Jordan, Jordan Peele said, you know, it has to go somewhere, right? And if it doesn't, where does it reside? Right, it's within you, and then it's handed down, it's mirrored. It's interesting. I I started. Um, there are times where I'll have a conversation with my children where I say, "Hey, you know, I want to apologize <laughs> <laughs> for <laughs> X Y Z," and it's because I'm beginning, as you indicated earlier, you have to first recognize that there's traumas there. You have to first recognize that there's an original wound, right? that there's an original brokenness. I think in one of 
Dr. Rohr's pieces, he he makes a juxtaposition between original sin, um, St. Augustine's, you know, sure. uh, classic, you know, piece about original sin, which has dominated much of Western Christianity. Uh, but he makes a clear distinction that maybe the conversation or narrative should not be so much about original sin. Uh, maybe it should be about original goodness of creation. Uh, but it also acknowledges that there is an original wound. And so maybe it's not so much about original sin, but there, there was an original wound, right? That original wound is is multi-generational. It is inherited. It is handed down. And and when you begin to look at that, that there is a there are original wounds in our individual lives, in our collective lives, right? So when you look at certain families, that there are things that took place in that family system that impacted how we think as a family, impact how we see the world, right? Not just at a communal level, but sometimes just in that sphere of influence that at the at the tribal level, right? And um just becoming aware of that. You know, there there are some people who I know they they um for example, they yell a lot in families, right? This is how they communicate, yes. right? It's like at a high octane. I mean, yeah. there is a high octane, like, like we just talk loud. And in other families, that just would be ab- abnormal, right? But to just become aware, to understand that that's how it is, there are reasons for that. And then to become conscious of that, change can take place. And to be compassionate, not only on others, but to also be compassionate on ourselves to show some self-compassion, some self-love, right? Some grace towards self uh, could also help us to be able to facilitate transformation and change and healing and wholeness on our journey. Oh, it's quite a journey that we're on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think the conversation about wounds is 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 a complex conversation. Yes. Um, it's easy to talk about the wounds of others, Oh yeah. More difficult to talk about <laughs> <laughs> the wounds that are within our own. And you know, the wounds are openings. They're portals. Hmm. They, they, they're an entryway to somewhere else within you. And sometimes they have to break open. I mean, sometimes things happen in your life. You say, why did this happen? Well, you have allowed a scar to heal over something that is festering, and it needs to be broken open. You need to break open. Sometimes the only way toward healing is brokenness. I look back over my life and some of the things I didn't want to happen. I mean, I prayed, where is God and why are you letting this happen? And when I look back, I realize if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be in a healthy path toward goodness if what I chose for myself wasn't snatched out of my hands. And so, you know, a loving God says, no, you can't have that. Or, no, this relationship is over. It's not going to work. But I want it, God. Yeah, well. (laughs) Wow. And there you are pleading and begging for something that is not in your good. I mean, God says, I, I, I don't come here to harm you. I come to love you and to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to give to you all of the abundance that I have created in this realm. And so to understand that the breaking is a gift, that the wounding sometimes even is a gift, that healing will come, that it's part of a process. 
We have free will to choose all of the most horrific things for ourselves that we could possibly choose. (laughs) And sometimes the breaking for those called to a different purpose, sometimes the breaking is such a gift. While using that as uh, just what you said, Dr. B, the wounds can be portals. In our Christian tradition, you know, the cross and the crucifixion are often seen as metaphors of of woundings, right? The passion of the Christ, um, the crucifixion, uh, but the cross as a metaphor embodies the that portal. It, it embodies that pathway for for healing. It, it it is a way of seeing, a way of experiencing, but really a pathway for transformation, a pathway for change and wholeness. Ultimately, healing and wholeness back to that original goodness, if you will, of, of, of ultimate creation. And this is a universal, this is just not a Christian metaphor. Oh, no. You know, for God so loved the world. Yes. <laughs> that he gave. <laughs> yes. Right? And so I think this is an important concept and principle that is universal, that is cosmic, um, in a sense that it it has deep truths that are true for all of us, not just some of us. The path forward toward healing is through our wounds. Not a path we want to take, but during the season of Lent, we're reminded that by the stripes of Christ, the wounds of Christ, we're healed. Dr. B, at the end of the chapter, you have um, several spiritual practices in the chapter of wounds. And I wanted to offer some of the reflections and practices to our listening audience. The first spiritual practice that you you have is in its in the form of a question. Have you or a family or community member ever experienced a collective of historical trauma? A, what happened? B, if it was resolved, how? C, what did the members of the community do while it was happening? You offer this opportunity for us to reflect on this question. And in question two, Dr. B, you ask us to tell the story of a spiritual wound that you or someone close to you suffered when you were growing up. There are a couple more, but I I think number one and two are, are more than enough for us to engage in our own individual, but also collective reflections and begin the process and begin the journey of engaging in healing and engaging in conversations and engaging in a contemplative practice of processing wounds. Yeah. Because we are one people, trauma to one group is trauma for all of us. And our response to that trauma must be contemplative, activist, peaceful, and relentless. We can't give up in the face of trauma. We can't give up when the breaking occurs. We can let go, as we talked about in another chapter. But we never give up, not on one another and not on the divine. Sometimes the healing of wounds is not within 
the realm of our human neighbors and must take place in nature. Sometimes you have to walk through a forest. You have to sit in the dark under trees and listen to the rustle and to their communication. Sometimes you have to walk by the open sea and watch the clouds floating by. We are as much a part of nature as the plants and the trees and the skies. And sometimes our healing can be found there. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. B. Thanks for listening to this episode on wounds. In this episode, we frame the conversation around the question, where does trauma go? We shed a spotlight on the fact that trauma has to go somewhere and that many of us do not recognize that oftentimes the trauma, the wound that we have experienced individually and corporately or communally is in fact being reflected. It's being coped with. It's being mirrored in ways that oftentimes are not beneficial or even healthy. And so in this chapter, we shed a light on that. And in the next chapter, we want to discuss the communal response or the village response and how that plays a role in our journey back to healing. Thanks for listening. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.